everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Born to Read, presented by Born to Rain podcast. It's good to have you with us. Um, today's episode is a little bit different than a typical episode in that we're not reviewing a book per se. We're, re- we're reviewing um, an essay written by Robert Rayburn. Um, the title of it is The Presbyterian Doctrines of Covenant Children, Covenant Nurture, and Covenant Succession. If that's not uh, a mouthful and a half. <laughs> um, but this is a, a really rich topic as we, as we dive into this. Um, this can be found um, in a variety of places. Jeremiah, you found it in the, the back of one of your favorite books. Isn't that right? Yeah, I found it in the back of... Uh, the case for covenant communion okay. edited by Greg Strawbridge. And, um, I, yeah, it's, it's in the, it's in the appendix and it's like the best part of the book, which is not really usual, right. Just to, to find your favorite part of the book in the appendix. So they saved the best but, for last. Right. Yeah. And this I also, so I thought, I thought I was the only one who knew about this, about this essay. And, but I was listening to something uh, Doug Wilson or I was reading something. I think you might know where it is because I mentioned it to you. Uh, and he mentioned this essay as being instrumental in convincing him of infant baptism. Hmm. And so I was like, wow. So I'm not the only one who thought this essay was like uh, amazing. Uh, didn't he said that, right? I'm not misquoting. Yep. yep. Uh, let me pull it up here real quick. Um, he said in, uh, the thing that upended me was an essay that I got on Covenant Succession by Rob Rayburn. The essay rattled me completely, were the words that he uses, wow. in large measure because Rayburn effectively tied infant baptism in with the promise of God in Scripture. Uh, mm. He said, ultimately, um, in effect, Rayburn was appealing to something I had always held to and then urged me to put my water where my mouth was. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, but just to uh, get into what Rayburn says, and there's no way we can flesh all of this out, but it's just so, man, it's so rich. He he starts out, I, get, I would say the first half of the essay is kind of him proving how uh, modern-day Presbyterians have really turned into Presbibaptists in that... Presbibaptists. <laughs> Did you just invent a new word? Yeah, I think I think so. Okay, it's probably a better way to say that. But um, they Baptisterians. don't agree. Ba- oh yeah, that one's better. Let's go. <laughs> let's go with that one. They're Baptisterians, uh, in that they don't agree with the magisterial reformers on uh, children in their relation to the covenant. So I'm just going to read one quote by Calvin, and then I'm going to read a quote by Doctor Thornwell, who was a contemporary of Charles Hodge. And you will see the stark difference. Okay, so here, here's Calvin. The offspring of believers are born holy because their children, while yet in the womb, before they breathe the vital air, have been adopted into the covenant of eternal life. Nor are they brought into the church by baptism on any other ground because they belong to the body of the church before they were born. He who admits aliens to baptism profanes it. For how can it be lawful to confer the badge of Christ on aliens from Christ? Baptism must therefore be preceded by the gift of adoption, which is not the cause of half salvation merely, but gives salvation entirely, 
and this salvation is afterwards ratified by by baptism. So that's Calvin, and that's pretty strong. He he pretty much says these children are not in a halfway relationship to God. They're they're here, but just like us. There's no there's no caste system within the covenant. Right. And then uh, Doctor Thornwell he says um, he says the church is to treat her children precisely as she treats all other impenitent and unbelieving men. She was to exercise the power of the keys and shut them out from the communion of the saints. She is to debar them from all the privileges of the inner sanctuary. She is to exclude them from their inheritance until they show themselves meet to possess it. And he also compares them and says, like Esau, they neither understand nor prize their birthright of the world and in the church. This expresses precisely their status and determines the mode in which the church should deal with them. So there's a stark difference there. Yeah, the, the, so the fundamental thing that we're seeing here uh, as a as a difference in the the perspective of children um, is whether or not they're actually uh, people, right? Right. Um, and so, uh, and to to clarify that um, when we when we say okay, how do we um, we don't admit our children into the covenant? Um, until they um, be, uh, hit, hit the phrase, hit the King James-ish phrase that he uses there is that they would be meet to possess it um, or able to possess it is really the the modern English <laughs> translation of that. Um, so he's saying, uh, we don't admit our children into the church until they're able to understand it. Um, and so then I think I, I'll use the, the Greg Bonson phrase, um, by what standard? Uh, what what's the standard by which we recognize somebody is uh, able to possess the inheritance, able to come into the covenant? Um, and I think uh, drawing the line anywhere, I think, ends up devaluing an individual's personhood uh, when you boil it right down to it. And so that's where we have to um, mm-hmm. be careful of saying, okay, our children um, are born into this with us based on a, a promise of God, not on a prom- not on a, a works-based mm. righteousness or a, um, an ability to understand, an intellectual understanding of the faith. Mm. Right. Faith is not merely intellectual. I think that's an important aspect to this. Uh, but also, I think this is, in some ways, I, I would see this as worse than my, uh, than our Baptist brothers, because when you compare, so uh, just for, I guess, if somebody's listening and they're not familiar with Reformed Covenant theology, uh, there is a category in Reformed Systematic Theology that uh, is biblical, and it says that there can be members of the covenant who are not regenerate, who are not elect. And so uh, what Dr. Thornwell does is he takes that example, which would be Esau. He was born into the covenant. He was circumcised to receive the covenant sign, but he was not elect. He uh, apostatized. Well, if you read Hebrews 10, those people who have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, those covenant members who walk away from the covenant are actually worse off than people who have never been in the covenant. So in some ways, uh, the Dr. Thornwell and, and the Baptitarians who uh, follow this are when they start out by saying our children are just a part of that external administration, they're just a, 
uh, like an Esau. They're a part of the covenant, but they're not regenerate. They may or may not be elect. We don't know, but we're going to treat them like Esau. That's treating their children worse, in my opinion, than a Baptist would, mm -hmm. scripturally, if you're going to be consistent. And so I think that's I think that's alarming because it takes away the Presbyterians' advantage of being able to parent their children faithfully because faithful parenting is parenting based off belief. And if you don't, I guess, what are you believing in when you say that about your kids? You're believing in the fact that your children are apostate from the womb? <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of fundamentally boils down to a belief that the power of sin in the flesh nature is more powerful than the electing promise of God. Mm, that's right. Um, yeah. and I, I think that that puts us in a, a scary place, but what I think we have to really clarify, um, and it's interesting that you read some Calvin quotes, and I think if, if we would call um, Calvinism the biblical um, view of uh, salvation, of... Um, how God saves people, and we've done, we've had numerous talks on this. We've had several episodes on um, some of the scriptural basis um, for that view of sovereign, the sovereignty of God being the first, foremost, and only um, aspect of salvation. Right, that that it's God who's saving. Uh, the view uh, of excluding children puts us in a dangerous place. Is to say that. God can't regenerate a child, and therefore we exclude them from the covenant. When the promise of God was saying, I'm the God to you and to your children, um, so include them, and I'll do my work, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, right. Uh, Charles, <laughs> Charles Hodge, uh, he, he bites back at this and says, I do not, we do not see how this principle can be denied in its application to the church without giving up our whole doctrine and abandoning ground to the independents and Anabaptists. So Charles Hodge essentially says, you can't believe that without being a Baptist. And so Charles Hodge recognized the Baptisterian slant that the Presbyterians of that, of that time were going towards. Mm -hmm. And so that's, so, but, uh, Rob Rayburn's essay isn't purely about historic reform theology. It's not just it full also... Hodge and Calvin quotes. <laughs> <laughs> right. The second half of the essay is he starts Bible thumping and showing that the there is a scriptural argument to be made for um, covenant succession. And he uh, points out what's called the loci adultus, um, uh, where he he points out that a lot of people are focused on theology, conversion, the ordo salutis, you know, all, everything that has to do almost with systematic theology is written from the point of view of the adult convert. And so that's not, uh, but he, he points out that's not exactly what we're supposed to do because I think if you take the, re the Bible as a whole and you look at redemptive history as a whole, the book of Acts where everybody's converting and, and you see all that, is a time of covenant a covenant administration change. And so that, that conversion uh, there isn't norm. And he taught, he shows how Hodge, Calvin, and all these other people uh, and the Bible view generational faithfulness, fruitfulness for generations as being the main way by which God grows his church. Mm. 
which is a huge paradigm shift from American evangelicalism. Right. Yeah, very much so. Because we kind of think, why would I have nine kids and try to raise them to be believers when I could go and try to convert nine people? Right. And well, because and those nine like kids have nine kids and logarithmically in 60 years, um, <laughs> that does way more than you could do by yourself. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Well, I think when he talks about this locor de adultus, um, I think the, um, one, one of the things that he draws out, um, of that, let me try and find this here. It says the entire treatment of the ordo salutis or the order of salvation, as people call it in this literature is characteristically written as if in fact, the typical experience of salvation were that of one person called out of the world only after he or she gained full possession of rational and spiritual powers. And what we do there, if we take the typical, um, you must repent to be saved that, um, uh, you believe first, then God regenerates you. That's what the ordo salutis is, is um, in what order does God uh, justify someone? Does repentance precede faith, or does faith re precede repentance? Is it all a gift of God? You know, that that's kind of the, the age-old debate. Um, it's really interesting that he draws out here in his essay um, that everybody, you know, in this Baptitarian, Baptist uh, perspective— want to hold very tightly to an individual confession of faith, um, that it requires an individual to grow up, to understand the nature of their sin, the the failure uh, of them to keep God's commands, um, and then a brokenness, and then a repentance into uh, faith. But then, and, and they'll, they'll push very much back on an infant's ability to have faith until an infant dies. And when an infant dies, then they're very eager to um, <laughs> defend that that infant was was somehow regenerate, was somehow a, a part of God's promise, was somehow um, uh, saved. Um, and so I think it, it, here, Rayburn, I think, is, is calling out the, the difference, the distinction there that... Um, one view, the, the view of covenant succession that he's laying out here, um, that faith is ordinarily passed from parent to child. And that's not to say that a child is automatically saved because of the parent. Um, that's, that's thinking in fleshly terms. What we're saying is that God makes a promise and God elects, and so we trust God to make that promise uh, or to fulfill that promise. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. <clears throat> a lot of people try to say, like, covenant children don't exist because God doesn't have grandchildren. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there are, my, my son is my brother in Christ. He's not, th there's no caste system in the in the church. Right. And so I think that's that's where um, all this then ultimately comes down to is the, the children of believers are being uh, are born into covenant households, which means they're born into the body of Christ and are to be raised as such. And then uh, under that view, under that view of covenant nurture, covenant succession, we can tell the mother who just lost her infant um, that yes, her child does go to heaven, right? That, that you can, 
we, we rest on those promises that, that God made these promises to you and to your children um, with a basis of that extending outwards. We're not limiting it and, and trying to justify um, a child dying in infancy. So that's where this like age of accountability um, view of uh, the, the status of children um, really lends itself to some inconsistencies, and it really only comes through in times of crisis. Um, and so we can all the way through with this, with our, our view of covenant succession, is to say um, that a child is born into a covenant household and is therefore to be raised as though they're a member of the covenant. And if they leave, they leave. And as First John says, they go out from us because to, to testify that they were never of us in the first place. But that's not, that is not supposed to be normative either. Mm, yeah, right. Uh, I think, I think people take the extra, the extraordinary circumstance of a child leaving the covenant and they try to make that ordinary. I think mm -hmm. that's the, the crux of the topic here is, uh, with the Baptisterians is that, and, but like you said, the practical application to a, a grieving parent, Thomas Boston, the, he was a Puritan. Um, he wrote this after six, all six of his children had died. He said, I saw reason to bless the Lord that I had been made father of six children now in the grave and that were with me but a very short time, but none of them lost. I will see them all at the resurrection. Mm. And, he's, and he's expounding on the covenant promises of covenant succession. And he had, he did not doubt the election of his children. Right. So although we cannot, <clears throat> we cannot claim that the covenant and election are synonymous, we also shouldn't separate them because that's not what the Bible teaches us to do. We shouldn't separate them so violently, I would say. We can distinguish, but shouldn't separate. Yeah. Well, I think as, as we would round, round the corner on uh, this episode and really kind of drive home a couple of the points, I think one of the one of the things that you alluded to earlier was that uh, desire of people to have their children have conversion experiences, right? Um, to and that a conversion experience is required for salvation, and that's what this lacorde adultus is. Um, as bad as my Latin is, um, hope I'm pronouncing <laughs> those right. Um, but that the uh, the um, the desire of a parent to have their child experience salvation in the same way a pagan pagan would goes explicitly contrary to the teaching of scripture. And mm. that's when, when Paul instructs parents uh, to raise their children in the nurture, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, unless when he says children he's saying wait till they're they reach the age of accountability then raise them in the nurture and admonition of the lord i take that to say that when he says raise your children that is from uh conception to when they leave your household and beyond um that the the child is to be treated as a member of the family and because of the the father and the mother are christian parents that they raise their children in this um and we're not turning our children over to satan um, to be um, raised as pagans and hope that they come into faith. Um, mm -hmm. We raise them as though they're in the faith 
and pray that God keeps them and does not let them fall away from the faith. Mm. Yeah, and to, to piggyback off that, I don't think that it's a coincidence that circumcision is so painful because if you look at the uh, Old Covenant, circumcision, uh, obviously, as an adult man, that would hurt really bad. <laughs> that, that would be painful. But to join the covenant, to convert, to join, to be converted as an adult was very, very painful. Which in the and new I don't covenant think, is why we're told to count the cost. In right. The old and, covenant I, as well. And I don't think it's an accident that that's so painful for an adult, but an infant just doesn't remember it. I, I don't think that uh, an adult convert to the nation of Israel who had to go through circumcision as a 30-year-old would want his son to wait till he's 30 to experience that. Mm. I think there's a, there's a message there that conversion as an adult is ugly and painful and it has many bad memories associated with it. I, I can, I can speak to that. My dad was converted as an adult and he would never wish for one day that I was born into a non-Christian household or that I would have to have a testimony like he would. And I think anybody who would wish that upon their kids is uh, gravely mistaken and I have yet to meet somebody who, who wishes, oh yeah, I wish my kids were away. I've never met anybody who says, uh, I don't think it's a good idea for my kids to live their lives in such a way as to have never known Christ. Mm. I mean, to never not known Christ. Yeah. I, so I don't think it's a coincidence that it just seems so painful to convert as an adult in the old covenant. And then, um, you know, I really hate the phrase normalize because it's, it's been used <laughs> so much recently of um, yeah. normalize it's been this, normalized. normalize that. And I just, you know, it's that. The word normalize has been normalized. When somebody starts a sentence with the word, we need to normalize. And I just know <laughs> something really woke and stupid is going to, is going to follow that. <laughs> but um, right. in, in this instance, this is one of those, like we, we really want to normalize the um, uh, the process of salvation, uh, or you know, if if a church has a testimony night, uh, and we want to normalize testimony nights being a person adult after adult after adult walking up and saying, uh, "I was born into a Christian household, and my parents raised me faithfully to love the Lord and follow His word, obey His commandments, um, and, and fulfill the Great Commission," um, and then have that be the the recurring theme, not, um, I was addicted to heroin. Um, I was a prostitute, um, and the Lord freed me, you know, and that the, right. the, the normal pattern would be that when somebody shares their testimony, uh, of how they came to the faith was, well, I had faithful, godly parents who raised me to love and worship the one God, the one triune God of the Bible. Um, and that that's the, that's the normal pattern. That's what we want. That's what we believe is, is supposed to be normative. That's what the Bible teaches is supposed to be mm-hmm. normative. So, yes. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts here on this, uh, this essay? Yes, I, I did want to say this essay is super good. We haven't even scratched the surface. You should definitely read it. I give it a rating of uh, 10 out of 10 for an essay. I wish it was a book, uh, but it's not. Um, but I would say, I think, I, I think we should raise our kids not to look for an individual conversion experience, but to teach them if they want a conversion experience, 
then look to the cross. Look at Christ. Look at his death, burial, and resurrection. That is your conversion experience. Because if you look at the Psalms, the children of Israel aren't singing about their uh, individual testimonies, although that, that is a good thing to share and to tell. They sing about what God did for them as a corporate body. They they sing about the the God delivering them from Egypt, although they weren't there in particular. That was God's redemption for the corporate body. So I think we should look to Christ for our conversion experience and teach our kids to do the same so that they don't idolize running from the cops and <laughs> silly right. stuff like that. And think that that's what they have to do to be a genuine Christian. Right. And I think that's ultimately where we'll come down to. If you go read this again, it's the Presbyterian Doctrines of the of Covenant Children, Covenant Nurture, and Covenant Succession by Robert Rayburn. Um, it can be found at thirdmill.org. Um, very worthwhile, bathed in scripture and just a really helpful, thorough understanding of what, um, how we should view our children in the subsequent generations. Uh, and with that, we'll sign off here and catch you guys next time. Peace.